You're listening to MedEx, the Medical Extrusion Podcast. Presented by U.S. Extruders. Extrude with confidence. Custom extrusion equipment designed for you and your application. Welcome back to the MedEx Podcast. I'm Steve Maxson. Today we're talking about high grip surfaces, and our guest is Ralph Olsman, president and CTO of Hawaki. Hawaki solves challenging grip or slip problems by adding microsurfaces to components and medical devices. Ralph, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Steve. I'm very glad to be here. Great. Ralph, before we get started, please tell our listeners how you got involved in the business of developing microsurfaces for medical device components. Yeah, Steve, it's kind of crazy because we've we've pretty much invented this field. So my background, I'm a rubber guy. I spent 25 years at Michelin, all in R&D. And as you might imagine, Michelin knows a lot about friction and wear and materials and so on. And even as early as the 1980s, Michelin knew that basically tire traction occurs at features in the micron range. So a micron is a thousandth of a millimeter. And so most of your friction occurs between a few microns and a few hundred microns. And at that size, it's too small, or it was at the time, too small to physically make samples for things like testing samples. So a dream in Michelin always been to have ideal friction surfaces that you could make friction laws and well-characterize things. And so we spent a number of years looking for that. And um, in uh, 2006, we ran into a prof- I ran into a professor at Georgia Tech, Bill King, and he knew how to make those structures. And uh, so we commissioned that and away we went. And eventually that led to Bill and I and a third gentleman to found Hawaii. And I left Michelin and um, uh, away we went. That's a great story. Thanks for sharing. Ralph, there's so much going on today with low friction materials and alternatives to PTFE due to supply chain issues. But let's start with the opposing topic of from slippery surfaces and talk about adding friction or high grip against wet soft human tissue to prevent migration of devices such as a fully covered stent but before we do that let's kind of lay the groundwork and tell us that what the difference is between high grip or anchoring and slippy slippery or tacky surfaces Yeah, so Steve, for us, it's a matter of design of the microsurfaces, and we go either way. And basically, to have real high grip, you put surfaces on a stiffer material to indent the other side and kind of dig in, not not cutting damaging, but to indent a bit and uh, create friction. On the low friction side, we do the opposite. You put surfaces on the softer material, reduce the area of contract, Try not to have any deformation, and uh, you can uh, reduce friction. It's kind of interesting because, as you mentioned, on the low friction side, we have lots of competition, PTFE, lubricants, and so on. On the real high grip, we really don't have direct competition. We compete against things like sutures, but in many places, you can't stitch something down. Um, A little bit adhesives, but again, adhesives are not really used so much in the body or they're problematic. So we provide a unique solution there for um, 
things like anti-migration to keep stents from moving out of place. Okay. So the, the micro-grip surfaces can be formed on thermoplastic materials like polyurethane, polyethylene, um, I think Dacron. Can it also be added to thermoset silicone or and expandable PTFE? Yeah, so Steve, we can we can put these micro features. First, we machine them in metal, or we have other other routes, EDM and so on, but we get we get them in metal. Usually that's for tooling because of price, but we do make a few metal tools and uh, a few metal end objects. But then the uh, metal tooling can form any polymer that will hold its shape. So thermosets like silicones, olefinic rubbers, dianic rubbers, and so on, epoxies and so on, and, uh, and any thermoplastic. Where we have difficulty is materials with very high cold flow, like a very low-density polyethylene, um, or materials that don't hold their shape when you demold. So, for example, something with a lot of uh, graphite um, carbon in it that has a plate-like structure, when you demold it, they will just simply fall apart. So we can put features in PTFE before the sintering, and sintering and the features stay there. Um, in expanded PTFE or foams, we can't do it because you crush out the porous structure. So... Um, you know, we can take a piece of expanded PTFE and make beautiful micro features in it, but then it's no longer behaves like an expanded PTFE and you lose those properties. Okay, interesting. When I look at a microscopic image of the micro grip features that protrude from the substrate, I notice that there's two levels that protrude. There's a, a base pillar and then the micro features are formed on the top surface of that base pillar. Talk a little bit about why there's a hierarchy of pillars there instead of just adding the micro surfaces directly to the substrate. Yeah, Steve, that was um, the uh, multi-level patterns were one of our steps through to try and achieve this high indentation pressure. So I talked about to get high grip, you need to indent the opposing surface. You need to concentrate pressure on the tips of the micro pillars. And so the trick is how do you make them small to concentrate the pressure without having them buckle and fall over? And particularly on something in a regular surface like tissue, you need to have some height of the pillars to penetrate into the tissue. And so if you make a single tall pillar that's just perfectly straight and vertical, they tend to tip over. Mm -hmm. And when we started, we were limited to silicon lithography. So we take um, silicon wafers, um, like the one I'm showing here, it actually has a micro pattern. It looks just shiny and blank in the, mm -hmm. uh, the photograph. And we make the structures. Well, when you're etching silicon, you're limited to straight vertical walls. You can't do a draft angle or not easily. So one way to get taller features with smaller area on the end to concentrate features, concentrate pressure, was to stack them up. Mm -hmm. So you have a one level at about a one-to-one -one aspect ratio height to width, and then you put on a second level smaller with 
more smaller ones one-to-one. And that way you can get some overall height to penetrate in the tissue and still concentrate pressure. Now, now we've moved to uh, other technologies as the, as the technology evolved and we micro-machine. So I'm holding up some bits to the camera mm -hmm. and if it'll focus small enough, the one all the way to my left is a 50 micron bit. Mm -hmm. So it is about half the width of a human hair. And the advantage of micro-machining at this scale is now we can do things like draft angles. So we can make angled features where you have a single cone-like feature to concentrate the pressure to still have strength against bending and so on. And um, we've kind of moved beyond the multi-level patterns. And kind of the newest evolution of our design is what we call clusters. And this is a little bit like putting a, a tire tread. If I go back to my angel roots, um, they never let me design tire treads. But uh, <laughs> anyway, I'm inspired by their great work. And um, so here we can have groups of pillars where you can concentrate the pressure and have room for the fluid to flow around them. And that gives us even another step up in, uh, in the wet grip. So... You know, when we started, it was kind of all simple fields of uniform pillars. And um, then as we, um, you know, step into the technology, our engineers get more and more creative how to get, you know, higher grip without trauma. And really big push now is to figure out every tissue in the body, whether it's bone and tendon or a soft serosa covering an organ or so on, and figure out, how can we get the maximum grip without trauma? Or some customers, it means just the right level of grip. So for example, a balloon, say for example, in your intestine, if there's a problem goes wrong, like with a robot or something, and that balloon is jerked, you want it to slide rather than tear the intestine. And so in a lot of our applications, it's that way. How do we get the maximum performance out of the device while ensuring that there's just no risk of trauma if things go wrong or or just um, ordinary behavior. Yeah, interesting. There's a, a fluid dynamics component to it as well, as you mentioned. Oh yeah, we've done a lot of work there. And um, um, viscosity of the fluids is important. And uh, so you can imagine you know, how clutches work or uh, automatic transmissions where the viscosity of the fluid is important. Mm -hmm. well, Thin films, you can use that same kind of viscous drag effect to create significant adhesion, significant grip, if you will. And then also as films get very thin, the surface tension can pull that film down on the tissue. So what we call the, the suck down. Mm -hmm. So you don't really need a, a normal force holding it in place. The um, surface tension of the fluid will in fact hold it in place itself. And that's important in applications like hernia mesh, barrier films, mm -hmm. things where during surgery, you want it very easy for the surgeon to position it, hold in place, smooth out, avoid any wrinkles. Maybe they need to pick it up and adjust it. And then when it's just right, they can do a final stitching if they need, need stitching. Right. And uh, particularly important in robotic surgery where, you know, with an open surgery, 
our technology is not that useful for mm-hmm. helping during the surgery itself because the surgeon can, you know, they got two hands and five, ten fingers and they can fiddle with it. And uh, laparoscopic, it becomes more important. And uh, with robotic, it becomes really, really important to have just the right grip and friction. Wow, very interesting. You mentioned high grip without trauma. So let's talk a little bit about some applications. And I know that one area that you're working on is adding high grip anti-migration technology to fully covered esophageal stents. An esophageal stent is used to treat strictures within the esophageal lumen to prevent closure. And as I was preparing for this podcast, I was reading an abstract from a medical journal and it talked about the migration of fully covered self-expandable stents within the GI tract. And I was surprised to read that, you know, one third of the cases, there's stent migration. And that's, that's kind of shocking to me. And I know there's conventional methods to kind of anchor the stent, the fully covered stent within the esophageal wall, such as endoscopic suturing and the placement of clips. And I know some of the designs of the fully covered stents have sort of like a a dog bone shape or flared ends that include barbs and hooks that could potentially lead to trauma. Walk us through the microsurface pattern on the outer surface of a fully uh, self-expandable, fully covered stent to prevent migration against uh, a sort of a wet uh, esophageal wall. Yeah, thanks, Steve. That's a good, good, good question. So, for the viewers that will see this, I will hold one up to the camera and uh, try and get it close. And as I kind of zoom in, you might barely see a little roughness there. Mm-hmm. In fact, the microsurface is invisible. It doesn't change the uh, behavior of the stent in terms of stiffness or elongation or so on. And um, uh, but but it does add a great deal of grip. So, on the order of five to eight times more pull force. And as you mentioned, Steve, it's pretty shocking, that rate of migration. And uh, the industry has been trying several things. Some areas of placement, they can use sutures or clips. But in a lot of areas of the esophagus, the peristaltic motion of swallowing is so strong that it will rip out sutures or hooks or so on. And they, when they just started in this area, they tried to use uncovered stents. They would keep the structure open, but you'd get so much ingrowth that at the end of even a couple of weeks of healing, it was really traumatic to literally rip these things out of the tissue. So they've gone to the covered stents, keep the stricture open, allow it to heal, avoid that traumatic tearing after healing, but they have a high migration rate. And that's where we come in. And in um, full-size pig studies, uh, everybody else's stent goes out one end or the other of the pig within 24 hours. Ours stay in place uh, for 30 days, the length of the test. And at the end of the test, they pull the stent out. You see bright pink, healthy tissue, see an impression of the micro pattern for a few hours, and then that disappears. And it seems to be a wonderful solution. It's being used in a variety of applications there. One I really like is uh, emphysema treatment devices, these little endobronchial stents, mm-hmm. where the first generation are kind of covered with hooks. 
they implanted in the lung to stop the spread of the emphysema. But then as the disease eventually spreads, they have to apply more and more of these. And with ours, it holds itself in place. The surgeon can go in later and adjust it, can move it as disease spreads. And uh, so it's uh, simpler surgeries, less traumatic, lower cost, and, and so on. And um, those are now in uh, human trials. And, uh, you know, we look forward to seeing them appear on the, uh, the market. Fortunately, a lot less people in the U.S. are, are uh, smoking. Emphysema is kind of declining as a problem mm -hmm. here, but other parts of the world, it's still a uh, huge, huge issue. I know that it takes a long time for some of these devices to go from early stage prototyping V&V to, to full-scale commercialization. Have any of these developments that you've been working on, in particular the GI tract, uh, have they gone into commercialization yet? None of them yet. So there's a uh, barrier film application that's FDA approved and on the market. Um, hernia mesh products are moving along. Esophageal stents moving along. Uh, COVID was a big hit for us. Uh, we have some projects today that are the same place they were at in uh, February um, 2020. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it hit our customers hard. And uh, you mentioned supply chain at the start of the uh, yeah discussion. And so, you know, when they can't get silicone to make their production devices, they don't want to do too much on R and D and, and, and so on. So, um, no, things are moving through the pipeline, but not yet, uh, fully on the market for the high grip. Implantables. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I look forward to, to following that. It's very interesting technology. I had uh, Dan Kaspersik on the podcast recently. Dan is the the founder and CEO of Poba Medical, as you're aware, and you, you kind of have a co-partnership, well, well, a co-development of an application where you're adding high traction to the surface of balloons. People know uh, Dan and Poba as a, one of the leading developers of balloon technologies. And so you're working on a project to improve grip between the GI tract or the vasculature, and in particular, this uh, an issue when a balloon is inflated within a target site, it, it has a tendency in some cases to kind of move out of position. It's referred to as watermelon seeding. Yeah. Can you provide an update on any um, the status of that co-development with uh, POBA? Yeah, we're working uh, very hard with them. Um, just got a new batch of uh, Parison tubing uh, last night from them for our, our next uh, step. And um, for dip balloons, you can put the features on the dip mandrel and it works pretty well. For blown balloons, it's been a uh, much tougher challenge. And first, everybody thought, we thought too, you could put the features on the mold for the balloon, and it doesn't work at all. It turns out that when you blow a balloon, by time the time uh, the expanding balloon hits that cavity wall, it is too cold to form micro features. And if you try and heat it up to where it'll form nice nitro features, then the balloon will burst if you can't quite, quite get there. So um, we've had to step back and think of another route, which is to put the pattern on the tubing that forms a balloon before it's blown. It's called the parison. And the trick there is you have to have a quite a different pattern on the tube so that um, when it expands in blowing, and, you know, they expand 
500, 700%. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need to have it expand into the grippy zone. Uh, and so what that means for us is it's a different, uh, if you will, a dense pack pattern on the tube that then expands very nicely into something that grips. And uh, uh, then balloons see lots of different anatomy. And if you do something like a feature too saw, too tall on too soft of a base layer with, I mean, too little inflation, you know, it can tip over. Yeah. Those. And uh, so lots of kind of tricky design issues and uh, we're working with. And uh, fortunately, Dan and his team have been uh, very patient. I think they're kind of excited. They see something interesting at the end, but um, it's been a, both a manufacturing challenge, a design challenge, and then a challenge to figure out how balloon works against different anatomy or against things like expanded PTFE covered stents or steel stents or so on. So journey still underway. Um, We'd love to have projects come along. As long as our customers understand, we're still, we're still plugging away developing and uh, maybe they'll be the lucky one that now it's just right the first time. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. It's a lot of iterations and, and, and development to, to get to where you need to be there. So look forward to fo- to following that uh, project that you're working on with Dan and the team at Proba. Let's uh, let's wrap things up and talk a little bit about extrusion. This is the MedX podcast and a lot of folks uh, are interested in extrusion. And recently I had Jonathan Jurgatis from Spectrum Plastics Group on the podcast. He was talking about the work that he and the team at Spectrum Plastics are doing to extrude and evaluate alternative materials to PTFE, again, due to this supply chain issue. And one of the things that Jonathan talked about was adding or modifying the surface of, for instance, FEP tubing to kind of create peaks and valleys on the outside surface of the tubing or inside surface to uh, reduce the contact and potentially reduce the, the coefficient of friction. Talk to us Talk to us a little bit about some of the work that you can do with tooling and add microsurfaces to the ID or OD of medical tubing. Yeah, so we've, um, um, you know, I, again, for those that are watching, I'll try and hold up a couple samples. Mm-hmm. And here on the uh, um, left side of my, to me, is one that looks a little frostier. Yep. And on the right side, one that's more clear. And so the, Frostier one, in fact, has about 40% more slip than the uh, than the transparent one. And in this case, in a demo tube, it in fact has the micro pattern on the inside and the outside. And uh, so on the inside, we put the micro pattern on the mandrel. And again, I'll mm-hmm. hold up for those watching. You see some small lines yeah. on the end here. Yeah. And on the outside of the tube, it's put on the inside of the outer die. And of course, during extrusion, the polymer relaxes, you have drawdown, it changes shape. So part of our patented technology is how to make the features in the die um, uh, so that they end up with the right features on the extruded product. And by the right features, what you want is very uniform pressure where they touch the wall so meaning flat top features. And then you want as little contact as you can 
without them bending, buckling, and and so on. So you want to you want to spread them out. So we want little square-shaped ridges on the extrusion. Now, if you just put a slot in a die and extrude, you get kind of a rounded lump. And the difference between that rounded lump and a square lump, square nice square feature is as much as doubling the performance. Okay. And and so it, it's kind of a nice technology in that um, on a hard plastic, you get a 40, 50% reduction in friction. So something like a nylon will come down to where PTFE is. Hmm. In fact, it works on PTFE and you can reduce further. Now, you know, it's not the performance of a uh, lubricant, um, you know, like one of the hydrogel lubricants, mm-hmm. um, but you know, it's far cheaper and far easier to qualify. You know, there's no particulate risk, no contaminants and, and uh, so on. In rubbery materials like silicones, it's a bigger difference, up to 80% or so. And in particular, it stops the, the kind of stick slip. And I don't know if that's the most volume of tubing that's in use today for this is silicones, mm-hmm. where it stops like, you know, if you want to just have a uh, cable cover to drag around the surgical suite, it won't hang up anymore. Okay. Or, uh, and, and so on. Then an interesting use of the uh, tubing is to make it easier to assemble the layup catheters. So when you do the reflow in a layup catheter, you melt out the micro features. So we've never figured out how to replace the PTFE liner inside a reflow catheter. Maybe we'll get there someday. Yeah. But but um, just easing assembly is uh, uh, kind of a nice application. Okay, so that's interesting. So you know, these applications where folks are trying to find alternatives to PTFE, that is for an inner liner of a composite catheter shaft. And what you're saying is if you use an alternative material, for instance, that has a micro feature on the ID so that it slides over a guide wire, right? That during reflow or the lamination process, you will lose those micro features. That's right. They melt out. So it's used in some simple catheter constructions, where it's a simple tube or maybe a tube with a braid over it within the tube. It's yeah. just all extruded. So it works well in those applications. Uh, it turns out we can, in fact, machine the patterns onto the mandrels for the reflow catheters. And the pattern forms nicely. We've not figured out a technology to get the catheter off of that mandrel reliably, particularly when they're tiny diameter and long. So if it's kind of a short, stubby catheter, you know, maybe something a foot or two long and six millimeters or more in diameter, you know, then we, then that we have a solution. Um, but really the high value, you know, long vascular catheters, yeah. we just need uh, somebody to come up with a really good lubricant technology for us to yeah. help with those catheters, bar, mandrels part. Yeah. Okay. Very interesting. That's good information. Hey, Ralph, this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, Thank you so much for joining. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate your uh, having me on and uh, love the podcast. Great. Thank thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to MedEx, the medical extrusion podcast presented by U.S. Extruders. Please subscribe to make sure you're getting the latest episodes. All links are available in the show notes.